This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. At the beginning of 2020, no one could have predicted what was in store for us. Boris Johnson was still celebrating a landslide election victory and months of negotiations and backroom politics looked to be over. In the US, President Trump was preparing for a year of election campaigning as the favourite for another presidential term. Instead, COVID-19 has swept away the plans of governments and businesses, not to mention the rest of us. And as we look ahead to 2021, it's raising big questions about the economy, the future of work and, of course, society itself. Well, joining me to unpack those and to pick out the key themes of the year ahead, I'm joined by some of our top commentators, Simon French, Chief Economist at Panmure Gordon, Economist Francis Coppola and Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. Simon, Francis, Craig, thanks very much for joining us. Let's let's start with Francis. That pandemic, I mean, what a year 2020 has been. Nobody could have predicted it. Do you think it's done permanent damage? I don't know that I would necessarily call it damage, but I think it is causing some structural change or perhaps more accurately accelerating some changes that were already happening, like the move towards online from the um, hollowing out of high streets, um, moves towards working from home, those, those kind of things I think were already happening. But boy, have they been accelerated and it's taking us quite a while to adjust to that, I think. Simon, were you besieged by worried clients at the you know sort of around March, April time? They they were worried about the tightening of financial conditions, um, interest rates on high yield debt, uh, even some of the safe assets. um, In the early part of March, did signify the kind of potential credit crunch that we saw just over a decade ago. I have to, however, give um, central banks around the world and indeed fiscal policymakers their credit for having brought loosened financial conditions and made sure that what was a public health emergency didn't permeate for particularly long, a matter of weeks rather than months or years, into the financial system, kept credit flowing, kept household incomes uh, relatively resilient to the what is an ongoing public health crisis. Craig, we, we seem to have crawled every inch over this subject, but let's let's just go back to the year of 2020. We talked a lot about how politics was having to cope with economics and vice versa and so on. Again, do do you feel as though politicians handled it well, given the fact that nobody had ever gone through this before? I mean, we're always going to be able to go over everything that's happened with a fine tooth comb and uh, criticise certain policy responses uh, and and find fault. But I think it's always easy to forget that a lot of this, these decisions are being made in the heat of the moment when time is precious. So so I think you always have to give them a little bit of leniency. That's not to say they've done everything perfectly. And it's certainly not to say that they've done some things even nearly perfectly. But I think when you consider where we are now uh, compared to what everything looked like back in March, um, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of the outlook that we're looking at now is far less pessimistic than it otherwise was. We were talking about the potential for, uh, for for double digit unemployment, for example, and now it looks like, for example, here in the UK, that could settle more around the seven and a half percent mark. Obviously, that's not something to be encouraged by, and there's a lot of progress to be made over the course of the recovery next year. But I, I do think the fiscal response, in particular, the amount of support that's been given to uh, businesses and households, while it could, uh, you could argue, have been better. Uh, And the furlough scheme, for example, is a prime example of that in terms of how late in the day it was extended. There are improvements that could have been made. But I think the efforts that have been made means that this the outlook is far better uh, than it would have otherwise been. 
Francis, you're an economist. You you have to look through things in lo- in lots of ways. You have to look through the noise and look at the news and look at the landscape and so on. Was that difficult during 2020? Um, no, actually, I didn't find it that difficult to do. I, I think, in a way, because I, in a way, I was kind of wasn't part of it. I was at home throughout of it, and um, actually, in March, and April, I was actually ill myself. Um, so, in a way, I had time to step back and think and see where this is going. And I was one of the very early people saying, you know, that some of the knee-jerk responses, some of the sort of far-out ideas we were seeing at the time, actually weren't necessarily weren't wouldn't necessarily help. You know, so things like why don't we do helicopter money? Why don't we do universal-based income? And I'm going, well, I've advocated both of those, but now isn't the right time to try and shoehorn these things in. We've got to try and make the best use of what we have. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the responses that we've seen from governments um, and from central banks, yeah, they're not perfect, as, as Craig said, but they, I, I think they're not bad, you know. I think, you know, they could, could pat each other on the back about this. I think the, the way we've handled, they've handled this has not been bad. Let's look globally, all of you, please, if we would. I want to talk about... Um, th- China, and I want to talk about trade. China, first of all, Simon, um, something tilting there towards China. It has actually come through the pandemic. It appears more successfully. Is power tipping towards the East? Yes, but that is not a 2020 uh, effect. What China has successfully done um, has been to control the spread of the virus. Now, we can have a debate, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have strong views on whether the social measures, the healthcare measures, uh, the movement of people, restrictions that were instigated in uh, Wuhan and, and other parts of China were replicable uh, in other countries. But the fact was the two big advantages that China had during 2020 was, one, the ability to do that, and secondly, in the global supply chain that at least near term is quite inflexible and a lot of the things that demand spiked for, we think of PPE, we think of some of the the enablers of working at home, you know, um, uh, low-tech manufacturing, um, a lot of that was demand that could only really be provided by China and therefore that managed to accelerate their economic rebound compared to some of the other Um, large economies in the world. Francis, what what happened to the relationship, do you think, between China and the United States when when Trump was in in power? And and I'll talk about the perhaps unexpected result of the election with you in a second. But first of all, do you think he he caused huge rifts between us and them, as it were? I I think the rifts to some extent already existed. I mean, I think there was, in a way, Trump is is a, a phenomenon that grew out of resentment against, among other things, China. I didn't think he necessarily caused it. Um, I do think, though, that the um, US administration's belligerence towards China has been broadly unhelpful to global trade and to global economy generally. Because, you know, when you have a trade war, nobody wins. Um, It's an unfortunate fact of of life. Everybody always thinks they win trade wars, but actually everybody just ends up poorer. And that does seem to have been the case with uh, Trump's um, um, handling of the trade relationship with China. So, Craig, then a big, obviously a massive political year in the United States, unexpected victory for for Joe Biden. Um, Do do you feel as though Trump sort of ran his course or did he do anything constructive? 
I just think uh, he was effectively caught out without the pandemic. Uh, I think we were all saying this time last year that Trump is a strong favourite and it was hard to envisage a scenario that Trump didn't come come out victorious. The economy was doing well, the stock markets were doing well, unemployment was extremely low. And it, it, I think it took a, a pandemic... A, to, uh, to kind of create that instability that's uh, in the economy, but then also to potentially highlight uh, some weaknesses uh, that, that Trump has uh, uh, and to make that far more public and to uh, to influence the outcome of the vote itself. So, yeah, it, it's... I think the way the way this the way this year's progressed, it has been like say a, a completely remarkable year. And you say that the Biden's victory was unexpected, and yes, this time last year it certainly was unexpected. But I think by the time with the closer we got to the election, you could see uh, that it was that it was moving more and more into Biden's uh, into Biden's favour, and you could see that. Based, you could see the kind of the the backlash as well from the Trump campaign as the as the election came closer. Yes, he can say in public, "We are going to win the election. We're going to win the House. We're going to win the Senate. We're going to do all this." But his actions said something very different. It said that he was concerned, and he was right to be. I want to talk, please, if I may, about big tech and the way things have changed very, very slightly. Big tech made an enormous amount of money because of us working from home and so on during 2020, and yet, and yet, at the end, in the final months of 2020. There was a sort of rotation, Simon, wasn't there, from tech to to other stocks which felt had been neglected. Do you think that was just, I don't know, making moves in the stock market rather than anything definite happening? Because the big tech companies certainly make a lot of money. I think it was a small move, unlikely to be persistent into 2021 and beyond, with one slight caveat, which is that if antitrust law, not just in the US, but within Europe, around the world, starts to become much more restrictive in terms of the ability to cross-sell services, to control platforms, to gather, harvest, utilise the huge data resources that these platform companies have. If that moves, then investors will follow suit very quickly in terms of marking down the valuations of some of these um, technology platforms. But... Mm. Uh, The winner-takes-all model that has emerged in in big tech, for me, does uh, looks likely to persist for some time to come because the rhetoric regarding antitrust law is easy. Getting bipartisan approval, particularly in the United States, on what that looks like when the near-term response is potentially jobs and a contraction of jobs and a falling uh, stock market – much, much harder to do, particularly if the outcome is going to be a divided legislature in the United States. Francis, given data, perhaps one could say, is one of the new currencies, did the position of the social media giants and big tech in general worry you um, during 2020? Yes and no. I mean, firstly, I think the pandemic would have been very much more difficult to endure without the social media giants and the big tech companies. Um you know, I mean, the kind of, of social isolation, separation, um, lack of contact and so forth that we have seen would have been very, very difficult if we hadn't been able to sort of keep in touch by technology and keep keep um, keep working, keep businesses going through technology. So in that respect, I think I'm very grateful for them. But on the other hand, they have cleaned up. There's no doubt about that. And other businesses have lost out. And um, their influence is not always benign. I mean, some of... Facebook shenanigans have been anything but um, 
so clearly there is a little bit of a reckoning coming as far as tech giants are concerned, I suspect. And that may have been the reason why the stock market is just beginning to get a little bit nervous about them as we go into 2021. Okay. Craig, I, I know you've been working from home during this and this sort of ties in with the big tech theme because you've been able to do that for precisely the things Francis has been talking about. Do you feel as though office life has, life has changed? I think it's changed a little bit. I don't think it's changed extravagantly. Um, yes, it's easy to say from where we are now that things may have changed forever. But I think the biggest change is just going to continue to be around flexibility. Francis touched on it earlier on in the show. These trends were already happening. What it did is it accelerated them dramatically. It meant that everyone had a working from home environment, which they may not have had before. It meant that people became used to having that little bit of extra flexibility. Say you have children and you want to be able to drop them off at school, pick them up, et cetera, et cetera. Having that flexibility is a good thing. That doesn't mean that people want to spend four days a week working from home, five days a week working from home, but it may mean they want to spend one day a week working from home when they didn't want to, or they may want to spend the first couple of hours of the day working from home. And having that flexibility uh, does create a, a slight shift, but I don't think it's going to be quite as dramatic as what maybe some people foresee or anything like what we've seen this year, because for all the benefits of having that flexibility and working from home, it does have its downsides as well. And I'm sure there's many people at this point that can't wait to get back into the office and can't wait to see other people and enjoy a different way of life. I mean, I've even found myself thinking back to those good times when I was riding the tube, thinking, do you know what, that commute wasn't actually as bad as I remember. And I'm sure there's other people remembering other things quite yeah. fondly as well. Francis, you've all, you mentioned in particular the amount of money and Simon did too that was used by central banks to be accommodative about all this. There is a lot of money sloshing around right now. That is not going to go away. When it does, Francis, are you worried about the, the tide going out as it were? I'm not particularly. I, mean, I know, you know, there is an unprecedented amount of money sloshing around the world, really. And the question is where it goes and what's done with it. Um, there is a risk that as we emerge from the pandemic that we could see an increase in inflation. I don't think that would be a long term, that would be a long term one, not least because, you know, unless central banks have given up completely, um, a response to inflation is going to be to raise interest rates. And a lot of people would cheer about that because I think one of the big problems we have is this very, very low interest rate environment. So in respect, in that respect, if there is a bit of inflation, yeah, bring it on. I want some higher interest rates. Simon, would you like higher interest rates? I mean, in as much as you can like higher interest rates, but you know what I mean. Yes, I, I mean, I would be nervous of the financial stability impacts of interest rates going up, although I entirely agree with Francis that a more healthy financial system long term probably needs a, a, a higher risk-free rate. What we don't know is over the last decade, the, the, the type of financial architecture that has been built has been tested in the abstract by by stress tests, uh, by uh, various regulatory regimes. But in the heart of battle, we don't know what a sustained move higher in global, not just US, the US managed to raise interest rates uh, in the last cycle, but pretty much nowhere else did. We don't know if that is more broad based, how um, architecture within the financial system will, will react. It's almost certainly the case the problems that emerged uh, during the global financial crisis will not be the problems that would emerge if an interest rate cycle starts to increase. But it is undeniably the case there will be new assets, new structures within the, 
global economic system, the non-banking financial system, which will be vulnerable. And trying to manage that, I think, stands aside or stands stands out as the key risk if, if interest rates and inflation are to come back in any meaningful form. Craig, do you feel as though failure has not been allowed, that there is too much money, that a lot of companies that might not have made it are being kept, if I can put it like this, artificially afloat? Uh, yes, uh, in a way, but I think it's also been necessary. I don't think it's necessarily been necessary for the last uh, 10, 12 years in its entirety. Uh, but I do think uh, throughout this pandemic, then the the, the the ends have justified the means. But it, as both have alluded to, it's a case of how long this goes on for and when is the right time to raising interest rates. I'm actually a little bit concerned about the Fed's um, recent changes in its, uh, in, in its own policy dynamics, um, effectively saying that it wants to allow for an overshoot of inflation keeping itself uh, effectively to low interest rates for even longer. We've been through an extremely long period of very low interest rates, and you do wonder whether that is going to have longer-term implications. Um, I, I'm less worried about the inflation side, I must be honest, um, but then maybe we've just lived through such a long period uh, of low inflation. It's hard to imagine a life when we see 3 4 5% inflation, but that might just be a bit of uh, naivety at this point. Simon French. Francis Coppola, Craig Earlham, thank you very much indeed. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.